This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change by Ashley Dawson. In Extreme Cities, Ashley Dawson argues that cities are ground zero for climate change, contributing the lion's share of carbon to the atmosphere, while also lying on the front lines of rising sea levels. Today, the majority of the world's megacities are located in coastal zones, yet few of them are adequately prepared for the floods that will increasingly menace their shores. Instead, most continue to develop luxury waterfront condos for the elite and industrial facilities for corporations. These not only intensify carbon emissions, but also place coastal residents at greater risk when water levels rise. In extreme cities, Dawson's offers an alarming portrait of the future of our cities, describing the efforts of Staten Island, New York, and Shishmaref, Alaska residents to relocate, Holland's models for defending against the seas, and the development of New York City before and after Hurricane Sandy. Our best hope lies not with fortified seawalls, he argues. Rather, it lies with the urban movements already fighting to remake our cities in a more just and equitable way. Extreme cities, the peril and promise of urban life in the age of climate change by Ashley Dawson. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. One thing that Americans hate even more than paying taxes is paying taxes while super rich people get a huge tax cut. In Washington, Trump and the Republican Congress, short on legislative victories, have decided that it's better to do something horrible than nothing at all. My guest today is Arthur Delaney, a senior reporter for HuffPost in Washington, D.C., where he has covered politics and policy since 2009. Arthur explains that it's a nightmare of a proposal, but that we have good reason to hope that it could very well implode under the weight of the very same sort of contradictions that have repeatedly sunk Obamacare repeal efforts. Before we get started, we've only got one more week or so to meet our monthly goal of 100 new supporters on Patreon.com. We put loads of work into this show and don't paywall a thing. So we depend on you voluntarily supporting the independent, left-wing media that you listen to, i.e. us. So, real quick, hit pause and go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And contribute what you can. Thanks, and on to the show. Arthur Delaney, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. There are obviously a lot of moving parts here. 
both in terms of specific proposed changes to the tax code and in terms of the underlying politics. Let's start with the big picture and then drill down after that. Republicans are billing this as a middle middle class tax cut, but the centerpiece of both the past House bill and the pending Senate legislation is a huge cut to the corporate tax rate. Can you give an overview of what's in the two bills? It's just like you said. They both bills cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20, and that costs more than a trillion dollars and everything else in there basically is swirling around the corporate tax cuts. There are other littler provisions that don't cost as much and a lot of provisions on the the personal side of the tax code that are actually designed to replace some of the money they lose to the corporate and uh, individual cuts. So I I think it's important for people to keep their eye on the ball. It's the corporate tax cut that is the most important part of every version of the legislation in both the House and the Senate. Dealing with some of the specifics of those those particular measures that are all in there to pay for the corporate tax cut, what are the most important, both in the, the House and Senate bill, and what are the primary differences between the two? Well, another funny thing about it is they they do pay for some of the corporate tax cut, but they didn't make any effort to, to actually totally offset the cost of the bill, which is kind of contrary to everything they've said about fiscal responsibility for the past eight years. But on the, on the personal, on the household uh, individual tax side, they get rid of tons of deductions and exemptions. And while they say that this is about simplifying the tax code, these deductions are things that basically everybody uses in order to reduce their taxable income. I think um, the the mortgage interest deduction has gotten the most attention, but the biggest thing in there is they get rid of personal exemptions, which literally go to every single person in a household, reduce that household's income by $4,000 per person. And that raises a ton of money. So they, they, don't like to get into the details of of all the deductions and things that they're losing because it it it's those are the reasons that they can't claim uh they can't guarantee that everyone would get a tax cut under this bill because without all the deductions some middle class households and especially upper middle class households would probably have higher taxes who does pay for for the for the Republican proposal, obviously it will deliver huge cuts to corporations, but it also will hit highly paid professionals. And then there's also this kind of entire sectional geographic redistribution thing, which, as far as I know, is pretty much unprecedented in American history, where there'll be a huge transfer of wealth from high tax states, which are also states that by and large voted for Hillary Clinton to lower tax states that by and large voted for Donald Trump. I think most of that is driven by what they do with the mortgage interest deduction. Now, they keep the mortgage interest deduction in name, but effectively they gut it because of the other changes they make. They get rid of most deductions, and they also double the standard deduction, which which currently 70% of taxpayers, instead of like, adding up their expenses for mortgage interest, charitable giving, and all, and all kinds of other stuff, they say, you know what, I'll just take a standard deduction, and that's a much simpler way of uh, dealing with your taxes. Yeah. So with a doubled or almost doubled standard deduction, this is actually kind of funny side point. They say they double the standard deduction, but for a family, it would go from 12700 to 
24,000, you know, which is like not quite doubled. So anyway, because they increase its value so much, um, a lot more households would take that and it would be worth, it would be um, a lot less valuable to itemize. So it's that combination of factors that would result in only like 5% of households uh for, it would only be worthwhile to take the mortgage introduction for like 5% of households. And that's a huge deal. Um, it does affect like metropolitan areas with really high home values because you'd have to have uh, a lot of mortgage interest in order for it to add up to more than the doubled standard deduction. And that happens to mean a lot of blue states, places like New York and New Jersey and California that have these extremely uh, – uh, big real estate sectors. And, uh, so, so it's, it's like a rich, you know, you could imagine it's, it's a geographical redistribution of wealth from Democrats to Republicans. There's also the deduction of the state taxes, right? Which is going to get cut under both bills. I'm, I'm a little confused about that. Yes. That's, that's a, that's the other, it's not, it's mortgage interest and the state and local tax deduction, which allows people to, um, write off the amount they pay in local taxes on their tax on their federal tax bill. So the combination of getting rid of that and doubling the mortgage interest deduction or, or, and doubling the standard deduction are what are what makes the uh, mortgage interest deduction so much less valuable. Now there this has been a huge political problem in the House of Representatives. They had to cut a deal in order to pass the bill. They cut a deal with Republicans from states like New York and New Jersey and kept a uh, just the property tax deduction. So your state and local income taxes, you still couldn't write them off, but you could write off up to $10,000 of property taxes in the House bill. Now, the Senate bill doesn't have this carve out because there are no Republicans from those states in the Senate. So this is going to be a big problem when it comes time to merge these bills together if they do ultimately pass the Senate version. I don't think there's, you know, you can't, I don't think it's reasonable to assume that they will get to this point, but if they do, they'll have to reconcile that in order to win over some of those Republicans in the house that they basically bought off by giving them a little bit of uh, property deduction. Because these blue state house Republicans are already in incredible peril this coming November passing on That's a huge right. tax increase to their constituents doesn't seem like it's going to help matters much for them. No, and it's funny how they're, they're just, they seem so desperate to get something done just because they feel like they haven't done anything and they need an achievement. And they, it, this, it sounds like analysis, but it's what they themselves say. It's so weird. You say, uh, uh, Congressman, why are you doing this legislation? Like, what's the big rush? Why is it so important? And they just say, well, our, our, our voters won't vote for us. Our donors won't give us money if we don't do it. But politically – the bill is not popular at all. They have not written an appealing piece of legislation, and I don't really see how it helps them to say they passed <laughs> this thing, especially if they're bringing home a big, fat tax hike. That's the opposite of pork. That's like, what? W- what's the food equivalent of that? It would be like <laughs> they're bringing home fake bacon or like a soy burger. Tur- turkey bacon. Um, God forbid. Uh, I'm interested to hear what, how you think Republicans came to this analysis, to this conclusion that it's better to pass an unpopular, wildly unpopular bill than no bill at all. I understand why it looks 
makes them look stupid and ineffectual to not be able to get anything passed. But the only thing that seems worse than that is to get something passed that is uh, going to increase the chance of their most vulnerable house reps in blue state suburbs getting knocked out in 2018. I don't get that at all. Well, they they know that they campaigned with these promises. They, you know, they said they would re- repeal Obamacare and do tax reform and all, those, all this other stuff. So they did say that they would do it. And it's as, on the one hand, it's as simple as keeping your word. Uh, a more cynical view of this is that they're, the rich people who give them money, who would benefit the most from it, say, we'll stop giving you money if you don't do this. So you better do it. So I, I, it's, I, I think you could, you could read it both ways at the same time. So I get the politics at play where Republicans are happy to do whatever their wealthiest, most nefarious donors want them to. But what I don't get about that— Let's be clear real quick. Like one guy literally said this. Chris Collins, the Republican from New York, (laughs) said our donors say they wouldn't give us money. Like, wow, did you just say that out loud? I mean, we all thought that, but that was refreshing. Uh, so, so sorry to interrupt. No, no, that is refreshing honesty. Um, but yeah, so I get why, you know, like Mercer types call and they're like, do this or or you're cut off. But I'm surprised that they're so willing to antagonize such seemingly Republican friendly and powerful interests like the home builders and realtors to get this done. That actually is a really big deal. They have made enemies out of some of the biggest lobbying powerhouses that we've got because the realtors and the builders can mobilize opposition in every district. And they knew this was coming. They said all along, don't do this. We really hate it. It would tank home values and we will lobby against it. We'll fly people in. We'll run ads against you. And they did it anyway. So that's, that shows you the imperative of getting the corporate tax cut done because they're walking right into this lobbyist buzzsaw of uh, of real estate people, and and I think that's a big deal. I mean, it's it's a it's a weird thing going on. One of several weird things going on within the legislation. Like it's yes, a a big upward redistribution of wealth, but at the same time they're accidentally doing class warfare against real estate. You know, they would upend housing policies. So determined are they to do the corporate tax cut that they would gut. A, you know, what amounts to $100 billion every year in tax subsidy for people who buy and uh, build houses. That's, that's a big deal. I mean, that's more money than the government spends on like every rental assistance and affordable housing construction program put together. And I think it is plausible, like the realtors say, that home values will go down if they do this. It would be like a real earth-shattering consequence. Another target of the Republican tax proposal are um, two other targets, related targets. One are, are, is university endowments, and another is tuition remission for graduate students and others. Is this simply them looking for money plus scoring political points against people that they and institutions that they don't like? What's going on there? I haven't talked to a ton of members about those things specifically, but the impression I've gotten is that it's mainly they're looking for money and they want to take out you know, what they consider special breaks that have been sprinkled throughout the tax code over the years. So it's partly simplicity, partly we need money. But I think you also do have to consider that they want to stick it to places of higher learning uh, 
because they're they're going in a, a fact-free, uh, know-nothing direction with their politics, where they're really hostile to uh, uh, institutions of higher learning. Plus, these are the places that have got a lot of the uh, the social justice warriors that they don't like. Um, but <laughs> ostensibly, it's just in the House version of the bill, which is harsher than the Senate version on this on this piece. They just you know flipping over couch cushions. <laughs> and emptying their pockets and like they're getting nickels and dimes out of these weird attacks on universities. Yeah, and, and sometimes the the spare change that they dig up can also serve the fortuitous purpose of punching someone in the face that they already don't like. And sometimes it punches someone in the face that you'd really think they didn't want to piss off like the home builders and the realtors. Um, I want to ask about the whole process question of how this is working. It's going through something called budget reconciliation, which is why there's some limit on how large a hole they can blow in the deficit. Is that right? Yes, but they it's pretty easy for them to use gimmicks to get out of this. So the, the, way, it, the way it works is they pass a budget, and having done that, they can then use budget reconciliation which the the main advantage of this is that you can get the legislation through the Senate with a simple majority, only 51 votes, whereas normally you could you would need 60. And since Republicans only have 52 seats up there, they'd need eight Democrats. They don't want to do this with Democrats. So they're they're going the reconciliation way, but it has constraints. And one of those is it is not allowed to increase the deficit after 10 years. So uh, 10 years being the traditional budget window they look at, there's this extra rule in the reconciliation process called the Bird Rule, which prohibits you from adding to the deficit after that 10-year period. And, and all the legislation they're doing clearly would, but the way they get around it is in, their, in the, the latest amended version of the Senate bill, they just say, you know what? All these uh, tax breaks for individuals will just expire in 2025. And then poof, the deficit in the later years just goes away, even <laughs> though this is ridiculous. Why would you give us an expiring tax cut that would set up a fiscal cliff and a political emergency in 2025? And they're just like, I oh, don't worry about it. That's literally what they say. Like future members of Congress who may or may not be us will prevent that from happening, which is the, uh, the same thing that did happen with most but not all of the, of the Bush tax cuts. Have you spoken to Republicans on the Hill who have in the past expressed a opposition to deficits that bordered on the religious and are now defending a massive tax cut that will massively expand the deficit? And if so, what do they say? They they quickly pivot to it's not the deficit itself. It's the spending. So that, that's obviously their real enemy, uh, government spending on social programs, things like <laughs> It's funny that they didn't say that at the time. Yeah, <laughs> things, right, because it's, you know, it's not popular to say, I am against this spending that benefits many people. You don't want to say that and get thrown out in the next election. So they say, I am against fiscal irresponsibility, you know, whatever form it may take. But then when they're presented with a, a form of it that they actually really like, which is tax cuts. Um, this whole fiscal responsibility goes out the window and it's, it's turns out actually what we don't like is spending. And there's a built in 
this is this is also uh, a neat trick because if they do get it through and it massively increases deficits, then in later years they the deficit argument becomes all the more urgent because the deficit will be wider, and the debt will be rising more quickly. So I, I think that's a, a a built-in benefit that they don't ever explicitly tout, but that they know will help them in the future, even though they're exposing themselves as not really caring about fiscal restraint right now. As intellectually dubious as deficit hawkishness is, are there any actual true believers on the right in Congress in in terms of like actual opposition, bedrock uh, philosophical opposition to deficits? Or are they all down to the last one only concerned about deficits insofar as it can be instrumentalized to starve the beast and redistribute wealth to the rich? Well, there there are uh, a couple things. There are ways to imagine that a bill that clearly would um, lose all kinds of revenue actually isn't as bad as it seems. And, and this is when they talk about dynamic scoring instead of static scoring. So static scoring, the Joint Committee on Taxation says, well, if you reduce all these tax rates by this amount, the amount of revenue coming to the Treasury will go down by this corresponding amount. And Republicans, what they're saying now is, no, 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 no. You can't look at it that way, because what would really happen is you'd reduce these tax cuts. These businesses would be so happy that they'd hire lots of people and everyone would have more money and buy more things. And the whole economy will be so much happier that more people will be hired. And then the government would collect additional revenue on sales and and payroll taxes, and the actual fiscal impact of this won't be as bad as it seems because we'll, and this is, this is Reaganomics. This is the Laffer curve. We'll get more revenue. It goes back to a certain uh, non-peer reviewed napkin. It's a fairy tale. It's not, and we, do you remember the Bush tax cuts that happened like recently? Yeah. Yeah. We can actually, we we can actually examine something that we just had this experiment in real life. We can look at it. Actually, did the debt did the debt go down? <laughs> no, it went up. It's so weird to have to try to have this argument. Like you're starting from such a place of illogic that what are we even supposed to say? And it, it, it's funny. It, it makes reporters, you know, if you're just describing things factually, it sounds like you're analyzing them or arguing or like really calling them out. But that it's it puts everybody in a weird position. But there are there are some members who are at least saying that they don't like this deficit stuff. And, and, and one notable one right now is Bob Corker, the, the retiring Republican senator from Tennessee. And he has said, he has suggested, but not outright said that he would oppose the bill if it adds to the deficit. But I, just, I think no one really takes him seriously. Everyone figures that he'll fall in line when it's really time to vote for this. Well, that's what I want to talk about next, which is that uh, I feel like my best hope, our best hope, for this bill's failure is that, like Obamacare appeal, there are just too many moving parts in a complete in a party that is built upon too many contradictions, and that any effort to tweak the bill, the Senate bill, to please one group of dissenters will only create a new crop of dissenters that will put them uh, lose them necessary votes in their stead. How do you see this playing out? How do you like handicap it? I I uh, I do a podcast called "So That Happened" for HuffPost, where I've been making unnecessarily bold predictions. <laughs> and my my bold prediction for this is that it won't. <laughs> that tax reform is going to flop. They can't do it. And it's for exactly the reasons you said. It's 
it's like healthcare reform, only even more complicated. And they even and they just uh, added healthcare. Weirdly, Obamacare appealed to it. <laughs> yeah, they're like this will make it better because it, it gave them money, so it allowed them to say, look, these tax cuts are even deeper than they would have been without this extra money. But it it instantly made it more fraught. I think it made it easier for Susan Collins to say, I don't like this. But there's a there's a question of whether they really want to include Obamacare in their tax reform or if it's just a ploy. Um, and this is not I I asked uh, John Kennedy, senator from Louisiana, if, if that's what was up. And he said, no, but it is a theory that you're putting this in now so that when you take it out later, it makes the bill seem all the more reasonable to the members who are not so gung ho about it. So it could be a trick is what I'm saying. But I, I do think that the overall politics of, of tax reform is is just as uh, fraught and and littered with pitfalls as the healthcare debate. The, the, the thing that's different, though, is that they do really seem a lot more desperate now, specifically because they, they blew it on healthcare. They feel like we really got to do something now. To what extent are they attempting to hand out uh, goodies to win over particular senators? I saw that they added drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which seems like a clear effort to win over Republican Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, do you think it will win Murkowski over? And how much other stuff like that is going on? The clearest giveaway so far has definitely been the the property tax deduction thing on the House side. And honestly, I'm less sure which of the changes they've made in the Senate had, were, were specifically targeting wavering members, you know, because no one has come out and said they're against it except one guy, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. And it's clear that they can give him what he wants. He's he's upset about this, uh, their lower tax rate on business pass-through income, because he is a, a businessman who, you know, c- collects business income on his individual returns. That's what pass-through income is. It passes through your business to your individual tax return. And, it, and, most and that's the majority of small. That's the majority of businesses, right? Yeah, most businesses are set up this way. They don't they don't represent the most money because regular corporations do, but it's it's a sizable chunk. And reducing this rate is going to create a logistical nightmare for the IRS because they have to prevent uh, rich people from reclassifying themselves as businesses in order to dodge the higher individual income tax rate that would remain. So that, that's a, you know, they said we're going to have guardrails and they've um, proposed some solutions in the Senate version that Ron Johnson said he didn't like, but I, I think everyone assumes they'll tweak it so that he can say he's happy. Um, but it's another thing that, that gives the lie to their the argument that they're doing this to simplify, because this doesn't simplify at all. This is going to make the tax code have a lot more pages in it, this pass-through business income thing. Yeah. So under the current proposal and even under kind of any conceivable alteration of it, you have this extremely incoherent and unfair system of a 20 percent rate for corporations. I think at present, the pass through rate would be about 32 percent. Is that right? If I remember correctly, Uh, it would be what they want is 25 percent. But then there's going to be differing rates depending on your role in the business and the way the business is structured, it's complicated. Just like they said it wouldn't be. It's going to be like really, really complicated. But then there's still the much higher, then there's still the much higher top marginal rate for for income 
and you have all these people trying to rich people trying to incorporate themselves as pass throughs. Right. Or how, whatever, however that works. So it, you, it sounds uh, like un, chaos. <laughs> right. Under, under present law, you already have people gaming pass through income just to avoid payroll taxes and, and, uh, and a Medicare tax on higher incomes. It's like 2.7%, I think. And, and a famous instance of this is John Edwards uh, setting up his. His, his law practice <laughs> as a pass-through and saying that it was all business income, even though it was clearly the result of his doing work that uh, generated the income. So he, so he <laughs> John Edwards, get a, classy guy, <laughs> right? So he paid, he claimed it was pass-through income and therefore didn't have to pay the uh, this kind of trifling Medicare tax on the on what was clearly wages. And so that that already happens, and they're going to make a much wider differential between the individual and pass through rate. It's you know you ask any expert, and they're like, yeah, this is going to be a uh, pretty big problem, pretty big payday for accountants and, and tax lawyers. Before I let you go, um, I just want to talk about something we've sort of been referencing the entire interview, but haven't looked at directly. But if you could just go over and underline. Who wins, who loses, and more or less by how much, and leave the listeners with that. People with higher incomes in businesses win the most. And partly that is just because people with higher incomes already pay the most taxes, and they want to cut the income tax brackets across the board. So, so inevitably, the richer people will benefit the most. And, and the way it looks right now, the losers are going to be families with multiple children in high-tax areas, uh, like like cities in, in New York, New Jersey, and California, because they're going to lose the special exemptions for their family members, and they're going to lose the dedu- deductibility of a lot of their local taxes. Um, and, you know, a, a side effect of that is that the states and local governments are going to lose, too. So it, it, it's going to create, if they were to ram it through as, as they're on their schedule, it would it would have a lot of disparate effects that are that are hard to predict, and that's part of the reason they're moving as fast as they are. Arthur Delaney, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Arthur Delaney is a senior reporter for HuffPost. Thank you for listening to the Dig from Jacobin Magazine as Marx once sketched out on a napkin, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually two, sometimes more. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Bow. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews do help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Also appreciated is your financial support. If you haven't already, go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help.